Welcome to Food Navigator USA's Soup to Nuts podcast with Elizabeth Crawford, where I dish with trendsetters, tastemakers, and industry experts about everything from emerging trends to regulatory pressures to marketing strategies. Startups with little more than an idea and a compelling founder story may no longer be able to secure wild valuations or enough funding to blow millions a month proving a concept, but companies that have a product market fit in competitive categories and can prove that they're on the path to profitability still have options, such as from the recently launched growth equity firm, Humble Growth. Founded by three established and successful industry veterans, including Orgain founder Andrew Abram, RX founder Peter Rahal, and consumer lawyer and founder of Gianuzzi Lindon, Nick Gianuzzi, Humble Growth has a massive $321 million from which it plans to write checks between $10 million to $40 million for mid-stage innovative consumer brands. It also has an impressive roster of investors with lived experience who are ready to share lessons learned, including Nestle Health Sciences and the founders of Body Armor and Stonyfield Farm. In this episode of Food Navigator USA's Soup to Nuts podcast, Humble Growth founder and CPG lawyer Nick Giannuzzi shares what it takes to raise money in today's economy, why money isn't everything, the types of companies and products in which the fund is interested in investing in, and what the next two years will look like for CPG companies raising money. He also shares some tough lessons learned and advice for surviving economic challenges. The current capital squeeze is not only challenging for small and mid-sized businesses, turns out it also reduces the amount of money that limited partners are willing to trust to investment groups, especially first-time funds like Humble Growth which makes its eye-popping $312 million fundraise over the past two years even more notable. The amount of money and the caliber of investors speaks to the success of Humble Growth founders and the realities of how much money it takes to make money in today's environment. All three of us have had you know, unique experiences in the industry, and certainly my two partners are incredibly outstanding people who have been very successful. And so to do a small fund just wouldn't have made sense for us. Um, second of all, we have a strategy towards what we think is the right market segment. So all of us have invested in younger, smaller brands. And we do that because we're part of this ecosystem and because we love the industry and because everything but thinks they're super smart and they can pick the early winner. But the fact of the matter is it's very, very difficult to dabble in sort of the smaller checks, smaller companies, like the true venture investment. You, if you're super smart, you know, you'll, you'll go whatever the number is, you know, one for five, two, you know, three for ten. But it's really, really hard because so many market, so many factors go into a successful brand. It's not just what the brand looks like on day one. It's not just the founder. It's the consumers, and the consumers can shift over a short period of time. So you could even have the right product and the right founder for an early, early company. But the market circumstances can shift. Like we look at the how everybody was in love with meat replacement products, and now not so much. So 
our thought process was that by having a big fund, a, you know, a $300 million plus fund, was that would allow us to write bigger checks at a slightly more advanced stage. So we're generally looking to write checks between 10 and $40 million. Generally, we would like that company to be doing at least $20 million in revenue. And so the question is, you know, why that sort of sweet spot? First, about what I already said about the risks of early investment. But what happens as companies start to emerge, the first thing is you can establish whether there's product market fit. Does it, at that price point, with those characteristics, is it really uh, relating, are the consumers really you know, supporting that and showing that there's going to be continued demand? The second thing is there's a lot of data available by the time a company gets you know, generally to that size. So now, rather than just shooting from the hip with exuberance and saying, I love the founder, I love the product, now you can actually put it up against data and say, okay, we don't just love the founder, we don't just love the product, but we have st statistics that demonstrate that this should continue to grow, and this is how. So back to the question of why such a big fund, the, we wanted to have a bigger fund so we could write a slightly later stage uh, uh, checks. Uh, we can make them big enough to be truly meaningful, anywhere from 10 to $40 million dollars, or quite frankly, even bigger, because our investor base is so strong, we think we could write even bigger checks. Um, and we wanted to get them at where the proof points were sort of established. While Humble Growth's logic for establishing such a large fund is sound, the question remains, how did a first-time fund raise that much money in one of the worst times to ever raise a fund? And how could small and medium-sized businesses do the same? First of all, because of my background as being a lawyer my whole career, I didn't realize it was the worst time ever <laughs> to raise a fund, or maybe I wouldn't have done it. Um, so sometimes ignorance is bliss. But um, the other thing, the other reason we were successful is because we didn't do it in a typical way. The fund, the whole premise of the fund was not to go to pension funds and large family offices and raise the money from sort of institutions. Our idea was completely different. The idea was based on me having been a lawyer in the space for 25 years, always, always, always representing brands and founders. Over the years, what I kept seeing was that my lovely founders, who I'm supposed to be protecting, they would go into this with so much youthful exuberance. We're going to raise money and we're going to get a great partner and it's going to go great. And the great thing about the industry is usually you're going to find your money, right? So check the most important box. You raise the money because you need to grow your brand. But that's not the only thing on the wish list of the people raising the money. They're hoping for a really good partner. They're hoping for a really good partner that can really add value. And my experience having done a thousand or whatever of these financings over the years for the brands is it's great if they can get the money, but they rarely get more than that. It doesn't mean that the private equity funds aren't, aren't talented and sophisticated, but they're generally not coming from, from an operational background. They're generally coming from a sort of MBA background, and they might be incredibly brilliant, but they're really on the other side of the table. So a few years ago, I started thinking about this, and I thought, where's, there's the, where's there kind of a mismatch in the industry? 
and I had this idea of what you should really do is try to stack the deck instead of raising money from the universities and pension funds. What if instead we try to raise the money from all the people in the industry, all the people who I served over the years, who had ups, who had downs, who made mistakes, you know, who sold businesses, whose businesses failed, and what if the fund was based on that? And so, my first meetings were with my two partners, Andrew Abraham, the founder of Orgate, who has had you know almost unparalleled success in the industry. His business is close to a billion in revenue. Um, sold 51% of it to Nestle a year ago. We'll sell, sell the rest soon. Uh, Andrew built his business without any employees until to, to like 25 million before he even had employees. He was well over 200 million before he ever raised money. I mean, truly outstanding. And then Peter Rahal, founder of RX Bar, him and his best friend Jared from, from elementary school, uh, ended up selling, growing and selling their business in four and a half years for $600 million and never raised money. In both cases, they never raised money because they never found a partner that they thought would really add value. Somebody who could help them make less mistakes along the journey. So, the idea of the fund was, let's not raise money from the usual sources. Let's go to the industry. A benefit of establishing a fund backed by industry insiders, including co-packers, founders, distributors, and suppliers, is that they know what it takes to succeed in the food and beverage industry. And because they now have money on the table, they have an interest in helping the entrepreneurs and companies in which Humble Growth invests. There's also a hundred of us that are willing to help. And every single person who wrote a check, I have a handshake, no contracts, because I'm not a lawyer anymore. I had a handshake with them where they said, yeah, we'll help. We'll send you our, the deals that we're seeing. We'll roll up our sleeves. We'll help that founder and management team. We'll give you introductions. You know, some of these people have built factories before. They can help with that. Some of them have amazing relationships with Costco or Walmart or whatever, and they know how to navigate that. Some of them are really strong online and with Amazon and so on. Some of them are pure ops people who have, you know, uh, learned how to build businesses with great margins. Some of them are from the supply side where they can help us chop and attack the, the, the cost of a, of a ingredients of the companies that we invest in. And so we had this holistic view of trying to create a better mousetrap. All of our LPs, and the best thing about this industry is the people who are successful in this industry, almost without fail, are grateful. And there is a sense of wanting to help with the next company. Is it because you know they're not done running their race? Is it because there's a bit of altruistic sense of wanting to help the next person up? Is it just the fact that everybody in this industry is like, you know, is a battler? Like we we are in order to be successful in this industry, you have to be a warrior. And all of these people who are successful in this industry are warriors. It doesn't matter what area it is; they're the ones who survived and who grew and again made lots of mistakes are so grateful for where they are and and they want to be continue to stay involved. While humble growth has stacked the deck with warriors ready to fight for entrepreneurs and the businesses in which it invests, Gianuzzi eschews that old adage that people, especially leaders, 
should be warriors and not worriers. Rather, he says successful entrepreneurs, including many of Humble Growth's LPs, are both warriors and worriers, a combination that gives them an edge on competitors that are just one or the other. It must have been a hundred nights in my life where I didn't sleep a wink because I wasn't sure how to pay my bills or I, there was a big problem or I thought I had made a mistake. And those are things that you own and you keep to yourself and you suffer with. And um, I understood the founder's plight. The being a founder is for probably the stupid because we're all still a little bit, a little bit dense, but it's for the fearless. And just because you have the courage to go out and you have the courage to start your brand, like, yeah, there's a fearlessness to it. But, yeah, if unless you're a fool, you worry all the time. The odds are not so great. The chance of being successful is not so great. Um, and I will say this. To be a great warrior, warrior with W-A-R-R-I-O-R, I think you have to be someone who worries. Because you go to sleep afraid and you wake up the next morning and you start the battle again and then you just battle all day long and then at the end of the day oh so maybe the maybe the fear creeps in again but that's the plight of the founder when they can't raise the money or they're not sure they're worried about a review with the retailer or they're getting ready to present it it's 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 frightening um and so uh, the people who've been through it there's a there's a certain um there's a certain um respect for the, the young founder who's in the throes of the battle. And we want to demonstrate empathy to those founders so that uh, unlike the case of, of Peter uh, with RX Bar and, and Andrew with Orgain, when they met with funds early in their process, we want to really try to offer a value proposition and empathy so that they know they're getting people not on the other side of the table but people on their side of the table who've literally done what they're doing. Sure, we don't know everything because every brand's different. Every journey's different. The things, the leverage, levers that they're going to have to pull for success are going to be different than our 100-plus LPs, what they had to do. But there's enough commonality where at least you can say, hey, watch out for this. I did this. This is how it worked out. That's stuff went while humble growth will heavily weight the experience and ethos of the founding team or the entrepreneur behind potential investments, it's also looking for product fit and brands that tap into real consumer needs and long-term trends, rather than just fads. One thing that we really like is longevity and wellness. Why do we like it? The same reason everybody else is, is, likes it is because it's where people are starting to really focus a lot of attention. Um, you know, I, I remember, you know, over the years, we've had all these different crazes, you know, whether it was when gluten-free started happening or whatever it was. I remember when there was, uh, like, you know, maybe three vita uh, three coconut waters on the floor one year, and the next year there was 103. Um, so we see all these things, all these waves and all these changes, and it's going to keep happening. And so, you know, we will continue to watch that. But what I do think is sort of a permanent shift. Like it was a principle, it was a thought, it was a dream, it was an idea that we can affect long-term health with how we eat. 10, 15 years ago, that was talked about, but I don't know whether the, the normal consumer truly believed that. Now we believe it. And now the supplements and the food choices, the timing of food, fasting, you know, all these things 
there's so much attention. And with more attention comes more study and more science. And so we really do like that area. A self-proclaimed glass-is-half-full kind of guy, Gianuzzi is optimistic about the future for humble growth and the broader CPG industry, even while he acknowledges the current investment challenges and the reality that the so-called easy money that was available pre-pandemic is unlikely returned to the food and beverage space. I've always been a huge believer in this industry. And um, it's interesting because even my law firm is a, a barometer of sort of what's happening because we do so many of those finance. And we do like, literally between all types of financings, we might do, might do close to 200 a year. And so we see the slowdown. We certainly see the last two years it's been lighter on M&A activity. Uh, which is sort of the driver and it trickles down. You know, first of all, there's a lot of private equity funds out there, venture funds. All these people are sitting on money. The strategics are well positioned to continue to do acquisitions and they're sitting on money. And so my personal view is that this is a trough before we go through another really good time. I know I have no idea. I'm not an economist. I have no idea exactly when that starts. But my personal view, my hope is 24 is going to be better, and then 25 hopefully is going to be really good. That, that's really what, what I believe. And I, I'd say I've seen some sort of green shoots that suggest that. While startups and challenger brands wait for the industry to bounce back, Gianuzzi acknowledges that they may need to make some tough decisions and pair back. But as long as they keep moving forward and have a good product – they will find the right investor and the right opportunity. But from an industry health perspective, the angels are still there. The small venture funds are still there. The larger funds, the mid, they're all still there. And they're in the business of deploying money. And so, and most importantly, the most beautiful thing about our industry, and this goes for all areas, beauty, personal care, pet, everything, all the new innovation isn't coming from the big companies. It's coming from us, which means that the money is going to continue, the opportunities are going to continue, and people continue to have great ideas. And, they're, and, they're, and the other thing is, the thing that drives this is there's always a new consumer. My kids go from 25 years old to 17. Their experience at com- consum- as consumers and what they demand has completely shifted over those years. The 17-year-old is going to demand things that are different than, than the... So, all of those things come together. Again, I'm super glasses half full or glasses 99% full. All those things, I think, are, are going to bounce help bounce back. On that note, we've reached the end of another episode of Food Navigator USA's Soup to Nuts podcast. I hope that you'll join me again for another installment. And to help you remember, I encourage you to subscribe. Until next time, this is Elizabeth Crawford wishing you a productive, profitable, and safe week.
if you have to grow slower, if you have to spend less, try to focus on making a really healthy, from a financial perspective, product. Focus on your margins. Make sure you're connecting with the consumer. You know, you hear brands that raise 10 million, they use it all in the first year, and then they're done because they didn't have product market fit. Spend the time on trying to establish product market fit. Don't hire as big a team and, and try to weather the storm. And maybe this bad, quote, quote, bad thing can come out positive for you because maybe what you're secretly doing is slowly building your rocket ship rather than trying to be a rocket and realize that you don't have all the components there. And so that's the only you know, hopeful thing I can say. Maybe you can keep it smaller scale for a bit, focus on the quality, really get to know your consumer. So for the early brands, buckle up and try to withstand and try to reach out and try to be hopeful and, 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 and try to just make the best product you can because a good investor is going to see a good product and a good founder.